0: What's up everyone, I am Julian and welcome to the Men and Tides Podcast. I am back with part two of my five part release, the Snyder Cut series. I've been getting some good feedback on part one so far, where I talked about Man of Steel. So hopefully more more of you will check out that one and hopefully you will all enjoy what I have to say on today's episode. Now this one I was especially eager to get to because it is a film that even over three years after its theatrical release Millions of people are still talking about it, whether positive or negative. Anyway, enough wasting time, let's get started. Today's podcast is all about Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Zack Snyder's second directorial endeavor for the DC Extended Universe, the DCEU. Now I'll be addressing both the theatrical cut as well as the Ultimate Edition Blu-ray of the film because, well, you realize that they're both very different when you sit down and actually watch both versions. Now, unlike Man of Steel, I actually did get to see Batman v Superman in theaters, and I even saw it twice. First time was opening weekend, and the second time was about two weeks later with a good friend of mine. I actually did enjoy it the two times that I saw it in the theaters. I know a lot of people didn't like it, and several critics practically tore it a new asshole, but I still enjoyed it. Then, about a month after its initial release in theaters, Warner Brothers announced that an extended version of the film, dubbed The Ultimate Edition, would be released on Blu ray with 30 minutes of added scenes. I was a little annoyed by that, because then it meant that the film Warner Brothers decided to put out in theaters for us wasn't the true vision of the film. And this wouldn't be the last time Warner Brothers did this to a film in the DCEU. But let's go back a few years. Let's go back to the summer of 2013 when the journey towards this film had just began. And Man of Seal had just hit theaters, and was doing pretty well at the box office, so a follow-up film was a no-brainer. Then at the San Diego Comic-Con 2013 event, we got the big announcement of exactly what that follow-up film would be, and nerds all over the world shit themselves with excitement. What? that crowd that's passion right there now upon the announcement of this film the big question on everyone's mind was who would be playing batman would christian bale return to the role after hanging up the cowl with the dark knight Rises, or would a younger unknown actor get the part much like henry cavill did with superman and those questions were answered when it was announced on august 22nd 2013 that ben affleck Was cast in the role of the iconic Kate Crusader. As it always happens with these kind of announcements, the internet exploded with disapproval of Affleck getting the part over Christian Bale returning to the role. And it's funny, because many fans had the same reaction when Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker, uh, with many of them referencing specifically his role in Brokeback Mountain as a big reason why he was wrong for the role of the Joker. But then the dark knight came out and we all saw everyone change their too same thing hell even happened back in 1988-1989 when warner brothers announced that michael keaton had been cast as the lead actor for tim burton's batman and now almost 30 years later he's considered by most people to be the best batman well you know fans still have not learned and they continue to have the same reaction for many casting announcements for other films like this refusing to give actors a fair chance now i will admit though that i was a little hesitant at first to accept the idea of ben affleck being batman but after a while the idea grew on me because ben affleck he's not a bad actor at least to me he's not he just happens to have been in a few bad movies that even he will happily admit were bad So after thinking about it some more, I decided that I was going to give him a fair chance to prove that he was the right actor for the part. And we also got the announcement that this would mark the first ever theatrical appearance of Wonder Woman. And, like with Ben Affleck being cast as Batman, fans everywhere were curious about who would be selected for such a big role. And many fans, you know, at the time, I wasn't even really aware of it. Well, apparently, a lot of fans fan-casted Gina Carano as the Princess of the Mascura, and had been campaigning heavily for her all over social media. And of course that didn't happen, and instead Warner Brothers announced that Gal Gadot, who at the time was probably best known for her role in the Fast and Furious Fast 5 and Fast and Furious 6, had been selected for the part, and the fan-casted Gina Carano would go on to play Angel Dust in 2016's Deadpool. And much like with Ben Affleck, a lot of fans flipped the fuck out at her being cast. With many labeling her as being too skinny to play Wonder Woman. Which is kind of funny because, you know, Linda Carter was just as skinny as Gal. Even, probably even skinnier, depending on your point of view and perspective. And I don't think anyone was complaining about it back then in the 70s. But then again, you know, it was a different time and it was well before my, i was born at least a decade whatever you know people always have something to complain about that's social media for you and we also got the same reaction when Jesse Eisenberg who at that point was perhaps best known for Zombieland and Social Network you know he was announced for the role of Lex Luthor because a lot of fans had wanted Brian Cranston to do it but even Brian Cranston himself said that if you were ever to play a character in a comic book movie that he wouldn't want to play someone that had been done by other actors before him. So, yeah, get the fuck over it, fanboys. <laughs> and we would also learn that Tony Emmy, SAG, Golden Globe and Academy Award winning actor Jeremy Irons would be playing Alfred Pennyworth and that we would also be seeing cameos from characters the Flash played by Ezra Miller, Aquaman played by Jason Momoa and Cyborg played by Ray Fisher. Then following the announcement of Batman v Superman at the 2013 San Diego Comic-Con event, director Zack Snyder revealed that the film would be taking inspiration from the Batman comic book series The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, which just happens to be my favorite Batman comic book, by the way. Uh, um, but he would later clarify that while taking inspiration from The Dark Knight Returns, the story itself would follow an original premise. In production on the film began October 2013, with principal photography starting May of 2014. And then the original release date for the film was set for July 17, 2015, but then it was moved to May 6, 2016, in order to give the filmmakers, and I quote, time to fully realize their vision given the complex visual nature of the story. However, the release date was moved once again from May 6, 2016 to March 25, 2016, with the Warner Brothers Insider saying the studio was, quote, not flinching in regards to the previous opening date being on the same day as Marvel Studios' Captain America Civil War, but instead stating that March 2016 was a fantastic corridor for them. And by the way, speaking of Captain America Civil War, that movie only exists because of Batman v Superman. Now seriously, go ahead and Google it for yourselves, you'll see. The third Captain America film, according to my research, was originally planned to be about the Mad Bomb story from the Captain America comics issues number 193 to 200 by the legend Jack Kirby, but that was until the Russo brothers begged Marvel Studios to let them do Civil War after Warner Brothers announced the plans for Batman v Superman. So, when you little Marvel MCU fanboys out there you know, want to say that the DCEU is always trying to copy the MCU, maybe do a little more research before you make an ass out of yourselves. I'll return to the comparisons between these two films a little later in this episode. Now, the hype and the build-up for this film was huge. As a big comic book fan, like myself, especially for DC Comics, I really felt truly proud to see so much attention being given to this movie in the months and the couple of years before its release in theaters and it was being hyped up as one of the biggest movies in the world because it would mark the first time that we were going to see these two iconic characters together in a live-action film at the same time. and It was such an exciting time and when I look back on that build-up towards the film's release in theaters I, don't know, I smile because it was quite a special thing to a little nerdy kid like me who never thought he'd get to see such a such a thing and never get to experience such a thing. Also, I'm truly amazed to see how being a comic book guy is treated now as opposed to 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years ago. You know, today if you're a comic book fan, it's cool. <laughs> you know, but decades ago you were con- basically considered a loser if you admitted to reading comic books. I mean, hell, just look at many of the teen films of the 80s that featured the nerdy comic book type of guys. You know, they were depicted as being the most pathetic people in the world. But the popular pretty girls, you know, wouldn't wouldn't dare, you know, touch them or be around them. But now, you know, being a nerd is considered sexy by some people. You know, I don't know, it's just amazing to me how much times have changed, you know? But anyways, back on track with the movie. Now, the closer that we got to the release date of March 25th, 2016, the bigger the hype felt and the more real it got for a lot of us fans. And part of the promotional strategy for the film was, you know, asking the audience everywhere who we thought was going to win the big fight between Batman versus Superman. And, you know, in retrospect, I kind of feel like that might have played a part in why some critics and, and the audience uh. Felt a little disappointed by this film, you know, but I'll get a little more to that later. Uh, and the marketing for this film was everywhere. You know, it was everywhere. You couldn't escape it even if you tried. There was just no way. Um, they had special magazines for the film. Collector cups, cereal, candy, shirts, hats, toys, apps, games, and there were even those commercials from Turkish Airlines with the slogans, Fly to Metropolis. Fly to Gotham City, featuring Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor and Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne. I don't know, I thought they were awesome. You know, very unique marketing by them that I believe worked very well. Now, let's get to the movie itself, because I'll, there's a lot to be said about it. After three years of anticipation, the moment finally arrived and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice hit theaters all across the world as I said earlier, I saw it opening weekend, and I was excited for it, so excited for it, that I even went and bought a brand new t-shirt with the film's logo over at Hot Topic just just for this. Yeah, I'm that kind of fan for this kind of shit. I always will be. I've done it for a lot of these movies. Uh, And I saw the film in 3D, because at that time, at least, it was the closest I can get to the IMAX experience living here in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Now, fast forward about two and a half hours later, And I'm leaving the theater feeling pretty satisfied with what I watched, but at the same time I was also feeling like there was a lot missing. Then it became clear to me, after that second time that I saw it, that there was a good chunk of the story that had been cut out for whatever reasons that Warner Brothers felt it necessary to do. And then came, like I said, the announcement for the Ultimate Edition, where we would see the true original vision of what the film was supposed to be. And I pre-ordered that shit right away, best believe that. There were a lot of, a lot about there was a lot about the theatrical release of Batman v Superman that really divided fans and critics pretty big. Um, the side that hated it were very vocal and even more vocal than people like me who who enjoyed the movie. And still, over three years later, you know, viewing the film that we we saw in theaters as being too dark, too grim, too violent, no heart, not enough fun and, and humor. Which you guys already know my feelings on that. You know, an incoherent story, blah, 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 you Now, of course, a lot of people were very critical of the film, perhaps most negatively critical of... SAVE MARTHA! Yeah, that scene. But I'll get to it in a little bit, because first, I want to talk about what I liked about the movie. Now, for starters, the opening sequence, to me, as well as many others that I've spoken to, was one of the most absolutely beautiful openings to any superhero film i've ever seen without any spoken words you know except for the, the one line zack snyder gave us perhaps the greatest live-action depiction of the deaths of thomas and martha wayne who were played by snyder's old friend from Watchmen, jeffrey dean morgan and walking dead star lauren Cohen. and also to me
1: the fact that these
0: actors were cast for those characters, to me, meant that it was not going to be just a one-and-done kind of deal, and that it would not be the last time that we would see them in the DCEU. And fans of the Flashpoint story arc will know what I'm talking about. Until it wasn't. Anyway, then they'd follow this up by revisiting the terraforming sequence from Man of Steel. But instead, we got to experience it here from the point of view of Bruce Wayne. Now, in part one of the Snyder Cut podcast, I mentioned Zack Snyder's great attention to detail. And there was tremendous attention to detail here because they were able to recreate every little detail of that terraforming sequence, and it was amazing to experience, in my opinion. Now, we got to see Bruce Wayne going all fast and furious trapped through the streets of Metropolis, trying to reach Wayne Financial Building in an attempt to... Save the people in that building from all the crazy destruction going on, you know. But obviously he was a little too late, and Wayne Tower went down. Then, when the dust settled, Bruce looks up into the sky, and he sees Superman fighting Zod. And it was in that moment, he made it his mission to destroy Superman. Then, fast forward to two years later in the story, and we see a couple of kids finding some. Kryptonite in the bottom of the Indian Ocean, which was a result- a direct result of the, the destruction- Superman destroying the world engine in Man of Steel, which was located in the Indian Ocean. Once again, great attention to detail. Especially since apparently people didn't even understand this reference right away as why they were in the Indian Ocean. And also, can we just talk about how clear and beautiful that water looked in that scene? Wow. I don't know if that's really how it looks in the indian ocean but if it is yeah i'm gonna go visit that place asap <laughs> and then we follow that up with the big firefight in the desert where we're introduced to kg beast played by Callan Mulvey, who also appeared as jack rollins in captain america the winter soldier and by the way to the people whining about Zack snyder killing jemmy alfin <sighs> That was not THE Jimmy Olsen. He was a CIA agent using the name Jimmy Olsen. He even says they, they only use her credentials to enter the village. Ugh. So you can all stop crying like the little babies that you are because that was not THE Jimmy Olsen. That was a Jimmy Olsen. Ugh. Oh my god. I mean, sometimes you fans just piss me off so much. You really do. I have a hard time engaging in intelligent discussions with a lot of you because so many of you have never even read a damn comic book in your lives and only know the movies. I deal with the same kind of shit with wrestling fans too, but that's another podcast for another day. Anyway, after the firefight in the desert, as it was referred to throughout this film, we are introduced to Senator June Finch, played by Golden Globe and Academy Award-winning actress Holly Hunter, who we learn has been holding hearings about the incident in the desert that saw the murder of several civilians of that village, and whether or not Superman should be held accountable for the actions. And this is another aspect of the film that I just really loved. The events of Man of Steel and the desert sequence at the intro of the film were directly addressed and immediately addressed as soon as we get closer into the first act of this film. And this is this will be I'm going to go ahead and this will be my first comparison man you know, that I'm gonna make from this film to Captain America Civil War Civil War was the 13th film in the MCU and it was the first film where they addressed the events of those previous films and that the characters were being held accountable for those events that occurred in those previous films just think about that it took 13 movies from 2008 to 2016. For the characters of the MCU to be held accountable for their actions. Meanwhile, here, Superman is being held accountable in just the second film in the franchise. I mean, to me, that shows more a little more consistency. Then we progress and we transition into our introduction to the Batman. And that first shot of him in the corner of that room, while Gotham City Police starts scanning the scene at that building, I thought it was great. I mean we didn't get to see a lot of action here but you know we wouldn't have to wait too long to see him do his thing then we get to see a little glimpse of the home life of Clark Kent and Lois Lane their nice little apartment they have together this is where we start the mysterious case of the bullet from the desert incident because Lois Lane found it lodged in her little journal journal notepad thing and she apparently never seen such a bullet like that before. You know, and she then was on the hunt for the story behind the bullet, which would be her little side quest throughout the film, you know, to use a video game reference. And we then move on to Bruce and Alfred in the Batcave, where we get to see more of the undying rage that Bruce feels for Superman, and get to see the little bits of the relationship between Bruce and Alfred, in this film, that I really liked as well. And then we get to meet Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor, Jr. Yes, Lex Luthor Jr. Not the Lex Luthor. This is a Lex Luthor, a Lex Luthor with severe daddy issues, by the way. And that's something that would become much more evident and prominent throughout the rest of this film. And we also get to see uh, small glimpses of his disdain for Superman and others like him. And then we follow up with. The now disabled Wayne financial employee that Bruce saved in the terraforming sequence at the beginning, Wallace Keefe, where we see him visiting the Metropolis Memorial, now in a wheelchair, having his legs from the knees down completely wiped off, and decides to desecrate the Superman statue, spraining false god across the chest. And. You know what? I'm not going to talk about every single detail from every single scene of this movie because one, I don't want to bore you people too much, and two, I don't want to ramble on too long. So, let's fast forward a little bit. We arrive at the mansion of Lex Luthor where Clark Kent is reporting on the event to an uh, honoring the Metropolis Library, or some shit, and he meets Bruce Wayne for the first time and Clark decides to ask Bruce Wayne uh his thoughts on the bat vigilante terrorizing gotham and we also got a quick look at gal Gadot as diana prince and we'll see more of her later on and while following bruce through lex's mansion where bruce was hacking into lex's database to get some info uh clark sees on the tv in the kitchen that a building down in mexico was on fire during a dia de los muertes celebration uh or day of the dead for my non-spanish-speaking listeners And he leaves the party to go save the young girl seen in that burning building. And this leads to what was my absolute favorite scene in the entire film. Even more than a couple of favorite scenes that I'll talk about in a little bit. You know, we get a nice montage of Superman saving people all around the world. While we see several political and television personalities, including Neil deGrasse Tyson and Charlie Rose and a few other people whose names I can't remember, but one of them I've remembered seeing a few several times on real time with Bill Maher, and they're discussing the existence of Superman and questioning whether or not we truly need him as our savior. Yeah, and it's such a beautifully crafted scene and complemented by the magnificent score composed by the team of Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL. Now, for me, this entire scene is the heart of the movie. I mean, you see just how much being the hero and how much being that savior to these people how much it weighs heavy on Superman's conscience, especially knowing the lives lost because of him from the Metropolis incident, that he can never bring back, no matter how much he wishes that he could. And he carries that guilt with him every single day. And for me, that, in my opinion, is Superman's true greatest weakness, even greater than his weakness to Kryptonite. That he wants to save everyone, but that he knows he can't. That's how, that's my view of Trippman's true weakness, not kryptonite, the fact that he wants to save everybody but he can't. And right, let's fast forward a little bit more to the nightmare sequence, you know, not a lot of people understood the significance of this scene, but it's probably due to a lot of them having never read any of the comics that this film took a lot of inspiration from. And the scene starts with Batman exiting from what looks like an underground tunnel, And then we get to see an absolutely amazing shot of a dystopian Gotham City and Metropolis with the Omega symbol on the ground. And then all hell breaks loose and Batman has to take on Superman's army and we get this awesome sequence all done in one camera shot with paradigms everywhere and everything pretty much going to shit for Batman and his allies. Then he gets knocked out by a parademon wakes up and superman put his hand through batman's chest and rip his heart out and then we get a nice little cameo from ezra miller's flash having traveled back through time to warn bruce saying that Lowe's lane is the key <clears throat> until it wasn't fast forwarding again and we get the awesome batmobile chase where batman drives around arkham knight style Fucking up everything in his path, because he is on a mission to get the kryptonite that is on its way to Lex Luthor. He is then stopped by Superman, who basically orders him to stop being the Batman. And then he we we get the now famous. Great scene. Then we get the scene at the U.S. Capitol building and that all goes to shit as well, because it's planned by Lex Luthor to make look like Superman is evil and doing all this shit and, and Bruce Wayne watching it on on TV, on CNN, I, I believe, makes his hate for Superman grow stronger, and then he breaks into Lex Corp, steals the kryptonite, leaving a batarang as a sort of calling card, and we leave this scene with Lex looking on with a smile, because everything is going according to plan fast forward some more and we find bruce now in preparation for his confrontation with superman getting his body ready to wear the mech armored suit he would wear in their fight construction kryptonite weapons and then returning to his bat computer to look over the encrypted data he obtained from lex Luthor, where he would learn exactly who diana prince really is and fast forward a little more to the big fight that we all paid ticket price to see and to me it was a great fight Action was damn near perfect. My only complaint about the fight itself is I wish it could have gone on at least you know like five, ten, maybe fifteen minutes more. You now, but the thing that most audiences and critics seem to have the biggest issues with on here was fine, damn, save Martha, yeah, that scene to go on a bit of a rant here in defense of this scene. Any of you who happen hopefully have an understanding of PTSD and how those who suffer from PTSD can be affected by simple triggers such as a specific sound, a specific word, or in this case a specific name, those kind of triggers can and will fuck you up mentally because it can bring back memories of a traumatic experience That changed your life. And in the case of Batman, hearing Superman say, You're letting him kill Martha It placed him back to that day as a child where he watched his parents get gunned down right in front of him and his frig on murdered in cold blood, and his father's last words being And that is why Batman reacted the way he did. WHY DID YOU SAY THAT NAME?! and then Lois Lane arriving just in time to let him know that it's the name of Superman's mother it's Earth Mother he steps back and realizes that he had become the very thing and he had become like the man who shot his parents in cold blood that is why he stopped himself from killing Superman not because, you know, oh, our moms have the same name like all those stupid fucking memes like to make them seem Now, this is going to be my my next comparison between Batman v Superman to Captain America Civil War. If you're checking this podcast out on YouTube, uh, I want you to watch this clip that I'm about to show. If you're listening on CastBox, I hope you'll be able to understand this anyways without having to watch it. I almost said Bucky, and all of a sudden I was a 16-year-old kid again in Brooklyn. You know, I knew you, pal. Your buddy, your Bucky. Why did you say that name? Now, after watching/slash listening to that, I have a question for you all: Why is Martha made fun of so much, but Bucky isn't? I mean, essentially, they're both the same thing. A hero being stopped by the utterance of a loved one's name. So why is one stupid and not the other? Why is one a joke and not the other? For me, that's just another example of the unfair bias that I've spoken of previously for the MCU. Anyways, moving on, we now reach perhaps the greatest fight scene ever in a comic book movie. I am of course talking about the Batman warehouse fight. Yeah, much like the Batmobile chase scene, this felt like straight out of the Arkham games. It was phenomenal to watch. You know, and this is actually my second favorite scene in the movie, and for most fans of the film, this is their favorite scene. And I really can't blame them for it because it really is such a great scene. You know, and it features another great homage to the Dark Knight Returns when we, he has one of KG Beast's henchmen, and KG Beast is ready to torch Martha Kent, shouting, I'll kill her! BELIEVE ME, I'LL DO IT! And Batman responding with, I believe you. Such a great scene. And again, so much love for The Dark Knight Returns. Then, we get the creation of Doomsday. Not THE Doomsday, but A Doomsday. Because, if you remember in the scene on the Kryptonian ship, the Kryptonian AI, K'ilor, 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 I don't know, I don't know how it's pronounced. Um, voiced by the lovely, the lovely Carlo Gugino, before proceeding with the creation of Doomsday, and I quote, Advising, action forbidden. It has been decreed by the Council of Krypton that none will ever again give life to a deformity so hateful to sight in memory, the desecration without name. Now basically what that line means is that the true Doomsday had been created long ago and may even still be out there somewhere in the universe. While I do understand some of the complaints for this Doomsday, it wasn't the Doomsday, and we also got another lovely homage to *The Dark Knight Returns* when Superman gets hit by a nuclear missile and he's looking like, you know, a rotting corpse for those couple of minutes. Again, so much love for *Dark Knight Returns*. And then, of course, this leads to another great highlight of the film: the appearance of Wonder Woman where she joins Batman and Superman to take on Doomsday, but what she really does is still the whole damn show as she kicked ass and looked damn good while doing it. And we then get a scene not at all inspired by the Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, I know. I actually have a comic book scene that had nothing to do with that story. surprising. And of course, the scene I'm talking about is the death of Superman, inspired by the comic book The Death of Superman, where, <gasps> spoiler alert, Superman dies after fighting Doomsday. And when I saw this film the first time and got to the scene, even though I had already known that Superman would be returning in Justice League, you know, because they were in pre-production at the time, this moment still hit me pretty hard. Because being a big Superman fan all my life, you know, this was the first time I had ever seen Superman die in a live-action film. And it was something that I never thought they would ever actually do you know and yeah kudos for taking the chance and i also remember a lot of people actually criticizing this moment saying oh why didn't superman give wonder woman the kryptonite spear to defeat doomsday why did he have to be the one to do it because you know superman sacrificing himself to save the world again it's totally out of character for him right but besides that point As strong as wonder woman is she would not have been able to handle that blast from doomsday the way superman did but whatever moving on now the film ends with the funeral held for superman in washington dc and a funeral being held for clark kent in smallville where we get the final shot of the dirt rising off the coffin but before we get to that final shot bruce speaks with diana and asks her to help him find the others like her so that they can join forces And fight the otherworldly threats that are out there and coming, setting up the stage for what was to come for the highly anticipated Justice League. (sighs) Until it wasn't. Alright, now I want to briefly address some of the scenes that weren't shown in the theatrical cut because there were quite a lot of them, and a lot of these scenes that were cut out helped fill in the many plot holes of the theatrical cut, and these scenes were reinserted for the Ultimate Edition Blu-ray. know, there's an, ext- an extra five minutes or so on the firefight in the desert that help better explain what I was saying before about Jimmy Olsen being a CIA agent. Um, and we see scenes of Clark Kent in Gotham City investigating the incidents involving Batman with his branding of criminals and perceived targeting targeting of the poor and adjacent projects of Gotham. We had scenes featuring Jenna Malone as Janet Clyburn, a scientist for Star Labs who assisted Lois Lane in her investigation of the bullets used in the firefight in the desert. Extra scenes from Kahina Ziri hiding from KG Beast, speaking with Senator Finch, and then being killed by KG Beast on the subway platform. and we get an extra scene of Superman saving citizens after the explosion at the capitol building, we get a deleted 5 seconds of surveillance footage showing Batman breaking into the Lexcorp, an extra few minutes of the fight between Batman and Superman, a deleted scene of Lex Luthor speaking to a projection of Steppenwolf, and extra lines of dialogue between Batman and Lex Luthor in prison at the end of the movie. Now why any of these scenes were cut from the theatrical release, I have no idea. You know, many critics who trashed on the theatrical version of the film, they went on to give great praise for the Ultimate Edition, even going as far as to say that that's the film that Warner Brothers should have put in theaters. Yeah, many fans and critics alike have agreed that the Ultimate Edition is vastly superior to the film that was released in theaters, and have questioned why they chose to make the cuts that they made to this movie. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers would not learn from their mistakes, and would continue to make several cuts to films of the DCU. It's almost like they're afraid to, of giving us great movies. Hmm. Well, if you're one of the many people who hated the theatrical release of Batman v Superman, and have yet to watch the Ultimate Edition of Dawn of Justice, I encourage you very much to go watch it ASAP because it really does fill in those plot holes of the theatrical cut and presents a much more complete and coherent story and if after watching the ultimate edition you still don't like it how about i offer you a nice jar of granny's peach tea and that concludes part two of my release the cider cut series wasn't that fun guys? But before I go, I want to briefly talk about some DCEU news that came out this week. We now have an official release date for the highly anticipated Birds of Prey film, as well as two confirmed additions to the cast. Uh, announced on Monday via The Wrap, the female superhero team-up film now has an official release date of February 7th, 2020, with Kathy Yan set to direct the film and a script written by Christina Hodson who is also working on the script for the Batgirl film. And we now officially have our Huntress and Black Canary. Announced on Wednesday, we now know that Mary Elizabeth Winstead, perhaps best known for her role as Ramona Flowers in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, will be Huntress and Journay Smollett-Bell, who I remember best as Michelle Tanner's best friend Denise on Full House, she will be Black Canary. You know, I'll provide the links to all three stories in the description below Now, personally, I don't mind either woman being cast. I don't mind it at all You know, of course, there are plenty of fans already bitching and complaining Because that's just what they will always do as I already talked about earlier on the podcast I you, know, you know, just be patient and wait to see how the finished products will look, okay? You know, we people, us fans, fans like we love to ju- judge so quickly before seeing the final presentation, you know, why can't we just learn to wait and see what they give us instead of bitching and complaining beforehand? Ugh. Anyways, yeah, you know, other than those women, and of course, Margot Robbie reprising her role as Harley Quinn, there are no other confirmed cast members for the film as of this recording. But since principal photography is expected to begin early 2019. I'm certain we'll get more casting news over the next four months for Cassandra Cain, Rene Montoya, Black Mask, etc. And I also expect that by the 2019 San Diego Comic Con, we will know a lot more about this film. Anyway, I do hope that you guys are enjoying these podcasts. Because even if it doesn't seem like it, I really do work very hard to make these as entertaining and as informative as possible. Whether or not it's working, it's up to you guys. I also try not to make these too long. Yeah, you know, I usually try to make these about. I try, I usually try to make these podcasts about 45 minutes long, because as I've said many times before, I don't know how many of you would want to listen to one man talk about Zack Snyder movies for over an hour. But hey, yeah, either way, I'm having a lot of fun recording these for you and editing these to make them as fun. Fun to listen to or watch. If you prefer to check them out on YouTube, yeah. Uh, and I hope you've been enjoying these, and I hope you guys will return with me next week for part three. But until then, thank you very much for listening. I will see you next time.